Welcome back to Discover More. I am your host, Benoit Kim. Do you have this distorted belief that life is linear? Do you ever think to yourself, if I do this, then this would happen. If I do that, that would happen, and so on. How do we face the endless series and sequences of uncertainties and the great unknown in life while being gracious to ourselves? In this week's episode, I share my featured interview on the Mental Health Toolbox podcast with Patrick Martin, a licensed psychotherapist, to unpack all these questions with practical wisdom and immediately implementable golden nuggets and much, much more. I am extremely intentional and selective with the featured interviews that I share on my podcast, and I truly believe you will walk away with practical mental health insights and other actionable items to help you discover more, something to immediately improve your life upon after the episode. Patrick is very thoughtful with his questions, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation together on his show. Without further ado, please join us in this week's Train of Discover More. Discover More podcast is for introspective thinkers with growth mindsets seeking authentic life stories. As a therapist, Benoit Kim highlights the magical relationship between healing and the optimal human experience of what we call life. Here's to mental health being a top priority today and every single day. Let's get this started. Welcome, Benoit. Thank you so much for making time to be on the Mental Health Toolbox podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time to drop in and share some nuggets of wisdom. Yeah, thank you, Patrick, and super, super excited to share my advocacy for mental health and what mental health and its avenue means to me with the listeners. So excited to see what happens on the show today. Absolutely. I know you have a wealth of experience uh, with change, with rolling with the punches, right? Life is full of uncertainty, and I know you definitely have a lot to share about that. Um, You are a therapist, but we're not always a therapist. You had a, a prior career before in policymaking. Why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about your background and we'll, we'll jump in from there. Before I answer that question, I want to share something I share with my clients often. I feel like a lot of our clients and patients view psychotherapists, whether you're social workers, psychologists, everything in between, they view us as this advice spitting machines without emotions. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> they just want to come to us and, oh, give me short-term fix, magically upgrade my life overnight. And of course, to that, I say therapy is not a place of me changing our life per se, but just a space of self-explorations and where I hopefully can help you going from stuck to unstuck. I share that because I was stuck in my former identity of a policymaker. I went to graduate school at University of Pennsylvania, which is the number one school in the country for education policy, because I think there is a lot of different avenues and vehicles for change. As a lawyer, as a physician, as therapists like you and I, Patrick, Mm -hmm. we can maybe impact hundreds of people every year, which is still a deep honor and privilege to bear witness to people's pain and help them grow in the way they see fit. At the same time, as a policymaker, you can impact thousands and hundreds of thousands with the signature of a bill, with creating of a policy. At the same time, I've seen so many people who held this utilitarian impact, as I did philosophically, in terms of the end, always justify the means. What I mean by that is we are often faced with certain temptations and the need to compromise our moral compass for the sake of impact. 
At the same time, nobody wakes up and smokes 20 packs of cigarettes. You always start with the first cigarettes. Nobody wakes up and finishes the entire bottle of Jack Daniel. You start with the first shot. And that's what I sort of witnessed in my policymaking journey for the last six years, where I've seen great people in policy for the great intention becoming a different versions of themselves for the sake of impact. Like if I were to ask you, Patrick, would you sign a bill that might be compromising to your moral compass and you may lose a night or two nights of sleep? Would you do that? I think both of us would say yes. Mm -hmm. But then through iterations of time, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, that moral compromise is going to get bigger and bigger and get exacerbated by the needs of policy. And I didn't want to go down that route. So I chose to pivot. But most importantly, most societal issues I was really deeply passionate about, I realized what well, the byproduct of unattended mental health issue, intergenerational trauma, poverty, or some combination thereof. So I took my L and I, I did get jaded in the policy sector because it's so much more than just the politics people talk about. And I wanted to choose my battle and I wanted to come down from the macro, which is a political aspect to the micro, which is a clinical. And I've been doing that for the past couple of years. I think that's fantastic, right? Because we, you know, I remember graduate school, there's really like two courses there. There's macro social work, think tank, and then there's, you know, micro. We were in the trenches and doing the one-on-one. -on -one. And they're, they're both very important, like you said, and very different impacts. But I talk to my clients a lot about is doing things on purpose for purpose and putting your attention with your intention, right? And knowing why you're getting into the business you're getting into. I, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, your lived experience, right? With what, what can transpire, right? How your intentions can morph into something that's unintended. If we're not, if we're not being present about the work we're doing. I think this thing has been going around online, but hurts people hurts people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us often get distracted or forget the fact that the macro is comprised of the micro. The macro, this totalistic system that we view from the outside as in, oh, how can anyone ever change the system? Because we have so many systematic issues, but we often forget, and this is a hopeful message, hopefully, that the macro is comprised of the micro, aka individual decision makers like us, mm -hmm. who happen to choose the policy sector realm or political realm or whatever. At the same time, her people, her people. So I think we need to address the micro, the individual aspect of trauma, mental health, or whatever, before we talk about the macro, which is a systematic change. But I am hopeful, even though I'm pretty cynical from my political or my policy backgrounds. But I do feel like societally at large, we are moving towards the right directions, hopefully. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think you bring up a really good point, right? Because it's like that saying... Or, you know, nobody's better tell we're all better kind of thing that we hear. And I'm wondering, with, with your unique perspective, right, because of your experience and working with clients as a therapist, what do you see as kind of the, the levers to pull? Like, what do you look for in terms of, because you were talking about being stuck, right? And I think that's why a lot of people seek mental health in the first place. If it's not burnout, it's life transition. Is feeling stuck and unsure, fear of the future, fear of making a change, or maybe not knowing what they want, trying to figure that out. So, and when you're when you're working with the clients on you know on the micro side, what levers do you think are most get the most bang for your buck in terms of what to pull when somebody's feeling stuck? Yeah, that's a great question. 
I have two answers to that. I think the first one is I love aligning myself with the client's needs. Because we talk about like, of course, all these holistic health, air quote, live coaches on Instagram, right? Of course, there are real ones out there, but I am concerned that a lot of them are just picking buzzwords to say the right things, to get noticed. Regardless, a lot of us who are helpers, we talk about meeting clients where they are. Mm -hmm. The reason why that is because stages of change, it's also because even we want to create this magical significant impact or change in clients' lives, if they're not ready for that change, the more you dump on them, the more resistant they become. So that's the first way I want to answer your question is the lever I like to pull is identifying precisely where they are at in terms of their capacity for change, since all of us have the capacity for change. At the same time, all of us have different timelines and readiness and toolkits that's available in our toolbox pun intended, given your show name, right? Mm, so right. so that's why I like to start. The second thing is, I think it's the idea of awareness. Because I think awareness is like the ethos of all therapy work, whether it's personal development, self-help, reading books, listening to podcasts, or seeing a therapist. It's all about awareness. And I view myself as like the vanguard of their journey. What I mean by that is, I don't have savior complex. My job or my intention isn't to change them, but rather, A, I want to make sure they don't hate therapists after they've seen me because we could be that reason why they never see a therapist ever again in their lives. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. yeah. And conversely, if we are the vanguards of their healing journey because of us, they may see additional therapists, maybe three years on the road. It's about planting the seed. So those are the two levers I like to look at where first, I want to make sure they don't hate us and our professions and B, identifying where they're at exactly per their circumstances and timeline. And based on that, I simply ask them, are you happy about the way you're showing up to your loved ones? Are you happy about your version at work? Are you happy about a relational version? Simply reviewing the archives of your behaviors and patterns. And you tell me, I'm not going to dissect and psychoanalyze you. You tell me, are you happy now? Mm -hmm. If not, let's talk about it. Let's dissect and unpack some of your behaviors and patterns of why you're not happy the way you want to show up as. If you're happy, great. We'll work on something else. But those two are the levers I like to approach because it's not always about what we have to offer, but where they're at in life. Wow. That's Excellent. You know, it's, it's so true. And when I think about like the whole connotation of happy, when you ask a, a client, like, why are you here? What do you want to work on? What's your goal, right? Your treatment plan. I want, I just want to be happy. Well, what does that mean? Right? Cause that means something different to everybody. And as therapists, you know, we have that writing reflex, right? We yeah. have, to, <laughs> we have to uh, monitor at least, you know, I do for sure. And being careful that we don't impose change. Like you said, on clients just because we want to fix the situation because we have to first figure out what is the change they want to see, right? Try and get really, really niche, really definitive about it to help them paint that picture, that vision for their future. That's where the whole miracle question comes in, right? With solution focused therapy, <laughs> you know, if things were different and you woke up tomorrow, how would you know, right? If a miracle happened, what would be different? Right. And like you said, you're even breaking it down into different life domains, right? Or archives of the different, you know, roles that we play in life, right? The role of yeah. the coworker, the role of 
employee, the role of spouse, son, daughter. You know, we all play, wear a lot of different hats in our lives and our level of satisfaction in each one of those can be quite varied. I use a solution-focused short-term therapy at my work at USC, a counseling center. Uh, but I love the miracle question because you show them what's possible on the other side. We're not saying it's eminently possible, but if you see the course through discomfort, through temporary pain, through the growing pain of healing and life, you can see that miracle on the other side, whatever that means. But yeah, I love about the writing reflex you talked about, because even before I became a therapist, that was my biggest struggle because I'm a thinker. I have this very preacher persona. I just love talking and I just love providing feedback based on my own unique circumstances. But I've seen a lot of life for fairly young because of different timelines and avenues that went down in life. At the same time, when anyone comes to you for stressors or emotional struggle or dilemma or whatever, nobody likes advice giving machine at that moment. People just want to be heard, be seen, and be cared for. They're not there for advice. So that's something that I continue to work on as my learning edge, especially as a therapist, because we have this dualistic identity as a healer, but also authority figure, like the power dynamics. And a lot of times we do have a lot of influence that a lot of us don't really think about. That's why a lot of uh, licensed therapists lose their licensure because unethical practices every year, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, writing reflex is something I think a lot about. And yeah, at the end of the day, nobody just likes unsolicited feedback, as we talked about before the show briefly. But I think people just want to be heard, be seen, rather than receiving certain advice. Because a lot of times through clarity, through just patience, and less is more mindset, mm -hmm. often I think a lot of patients and people can come to their own solutions because we are the experts of certain modalities, mm -hmm. but patients are always the experts of their own lives. Absolutely. I was just thinking about that. You know, that's, that's something that really in graduate school echoes, you know, patients are the expert of their own lives. And I try to remember that as well because the answer is usually already there within them. If they can, if they can have the space to, explore their understanding of their situation without judgment, right? To have a sounding board, to think out loud with someone. Kind of a funny thing when you talk about advice, because I think, <laughs> I think a lot of people who haven't been in therapy or in the, the mental health space assume that therapists do give advice, right? When it's sometimes it's quite the contrary. We're told we're trained not to give advice. We're taught to help explore options, but not to necessarily tell people what to do. <laughs> So it's kind of an interesting dynamic, actually. I feel like a lot of the help seekers who come to therapy for the first time, which is amazing, if we happen to be that gateway for first-time help seekers, help seekers. Uh, but it is, uh, it's funny to see their dissonance or their struggle visibly when they come to you with three specific questions. And you're like, oh, can you just give me advice on these three specific questions I've been thinking a lot about? And I never answer those questions. Mm. I always dance around the surface issue mm -hmm. because as you know, Patrick, our behaviors are often the manifestations of something deeper, just like substance use, addictions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And through experience and through intuitive feeling, right? Intuition is this weird, inarticulable thing that we all have through mindfulness, through intentionality and so on. I often pick up these intuitive whisper clinically and I never address those issues. And I go a little bit deeper 
depending on the client's comfortability and the rapport that we have built. But it's always funny and in interesting to see the facial expressions of these clients when they realize, wow, he is not going to give me the advice that I want. Mm -hmm. And this is not a short-term fix, but it's a process. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, turns some people off and they don't come back, mm -hmm. which is not always pleasant at the same time. I think we all have to understand that our biggest role isn't to just give advice, but truly bear witness to their growth, to their journey, because life isn't easy. Mm -hmm. At the same time, none of us walk this path of life alone. So at least that's how I view the container of therapy as like a navigation system. I love that. Absolutely. It's like a compass, getting yeah. your bearings, literally, right? It's a space to get your bearings when you feel lost. Absolutely. I love that. And what you just touched on really about the expectations of therapy and what actually happens, I think speaks a lot to that idea of how to get unstuck. And that's a sounds like a really unique strategy, right? Because I, I see myself doing that too in counseling. The same thing you just brought up, client, you know, a help seeker, client, consumer comes um, seeking a particular outcome, but oftentimes that's not the actual problem. And so tunnel vision, right? We all get it. We all get tunnel vision about our problems. And sometimes the more we try and press head on those, those situations, it's almost like a writer's block. We don't see the bigger picture. We don't see the alternative options. We don't see the, even the other things that are equally, if not more important to our sense of satisfaction, autonomy, agency. An analogy just came up where it's like the finger trap, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if you remember the finger uh -huh, trap. I do, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, for just audio listeners, where you have a finger trap, the harder you try to pull against the finger trap, the tighter the trap becomes. And you can, of course, will your power by breaking the finger trap, but that defeats the whole purpose. And the only way out is through, which is by actually retracting back to the original point and letting the trap gets loose and you can sort of take your fingers out. That's sort of how I view what you just said in terms of Often cognitively, we feel like we have to willpower through. Maybe it's recovery in light of the America's uh, shining hustle, go, go, go mm -hmm. culture. Rest is for the dead, which is mm -hmm. the dumbest thing ever. Um, and a lot of times we have this mindset and this idiosyncratic uh, belief that we have to power through. If we're facing a wall, just tear down the wall down. Mm -hmm. Well, in theory, this sounds cool, but the last time I checked, our skeleton and our bone density cannot compete with the wall and the wall is going to win 10 out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. So the best way to do is actually take a step back and look at the bigger picture as you alluded to. And I think that comes down to surrender, but now a lot of men hate that word surrender. What do you mean? Just giving up Let life happens to us? Well, no, it's, it's rather, you can only control how you respond to life but we can't exert influence on life. That's very funny saying out loud. We can control life. That doesn't make any sense. And that's what I mean by surrendering is accept your responsibility in a situations in how you want to respond to circumstances. So we're not just the victims of our circumstances. At the same time, think of a bigger picture and have the humility to see that our perception is not reality because our perceptions are often distorted. And, and reality is reality. Hmm. But that's something I think sort of uh, came up just now. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was just thinking about the, the whole analogy with the brick wall and <laughs> the finger trap. And 
Uh, I'm very visual, so I like that. I was just thinking about when I was uh, I was late this year to decorate for Christmas and <laughs> couldn't find the Christmas lights. Could not find them anywhere. I was like, where are they? And then finally it occurred to me, I think I donated those with the other lights that I thought <laughs> I didn't want. <laughs> so I ordered new Christmas lights. You know, when you first take Christmas lights out of a box, they're all tangled and got to undo them and it's very time consuming. So you get impatient, get frustrated. It ends up becoming more difficult, right? More time consuming. Whereas if we just kind of settle into it, the process and breathe and just, you know, take our time with it. Oftentimes it's a lot faster, right? Reminds me of that saying uh, of the Navy SEALs, right? How does it smooth is slow is uh, slow is fast, fast is smooth. Right. There you go. That's it. Yeah. So oftentimes we get more done by being relaxed, patient, accept, accepting the process. goes back to the act therapy, right? Acceptance yep. and commitment. It's the whole idea. I mean, these concepts, right? Of not, not swimming against the current. Going on the analogy of finger trap, where even like headphone jacks or Christmas lights that you talked about, they're all tangled. There is no bigger frustrations than when you stub a toe against a table edge or step on a Lego brick. <laughs> Guilty of that. Or oh. spending like 30 minutes trying to untangle the, your headphones or earphones before the wireless stage now. But mm -hmm. the fastest way to untether or untangle the mess of earphones or headphone jacks, or whatever, is actually not pulling them because most people like to pull them mm -hmm. and you actually makes the Attention. messiness of that and the tension even more exacerbated. And the only way to do it, because there's a lot of life hacks out there and most of them don't work. But one of the few life hacks I came across that do work is untangling or untethering the headphone jacks. You actually mush them together and you actually create even more of a mess. Mm -hmm. And through that, the tangles get loosened and then you mm -hmm. pick them out one by one versus this, in um intuitive feeling where you just see oh mess let me just pull them apart mm -hmm. life doesn't really work like that but uh yeah it, it reminds me of like a lot of the self-sabotage tendencies i see with my many clients mm -hmm. where a lot of times in life when shit goes wrong or when things are not going to our expectations because it comes down to expectations and my favorite quote is expectations a thief of happiness it really is often mm -hmm. the best what we could do is just wait less is more and the best we could do in these messiness of life that we don't have control over is simply waiting it out or waiting for a better response to come out. But instead, a lot of us, we dive head, head first, spearhead into this messiness, and we actually makes the situation worse often. And a lot of that is ego-driven for a lot of men, right? I'm not saying women's immune to this phenomenon, but I think it's a little bit more salient for men. But yeah, that's something I also wanted to share. Yeah, yeah. Another great point. Absolutely. And I was actually thinking about that a few minutes ago, the whole idea of expectations. When we try and force outcomes. I read a book by James Clear, Atomic Habits. You read it? Great book. Great book. I, I'm all, I love I love practical wisdom kind of stuff. Yeah. I need all I can get. Um, but James Clear, you know, definitely talks about like not getting attached to outcomes because we can't guarantee outcomes. Outcomes are not even necessarily in our control to produce. The only thing we have control of is our actions, including a response. Like you were saying, we always have a choice in how we respond to something, to someone. And I often, with clients, will use the analogy of chess. When human behavior repeats patterns, patterns maintain problems or identified problems, what we define as a problem. And 
if you're familiar with chess, right? If you and I have been playing chess together for 10 years, we can sit there and drink our cup of coffee and, and chew the fat without even really thinking about what we're doing. And we're almost always going to have the same outcomes, right? Because I know what you're going to do, you know, subconsciously, you know what I'm going to do because it's just ingrained where we know what to expect, the behavioral patterns. But if you suddenly do something you've never done before in terms of a move, right? Let's say you sacrifice your queen or something. When I wouldn't expect you to. For It's going to cause me to like, whoa, 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 whoa. What just happened? I'm going to put my coffee down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What did I miss? Why did you do that? That's not what I expected from Benoit. He just, he doesn't give away his queen. Suddenly I'm present again. I'm analyzing. But we don't do that so much in relationships when the pattern is maintained. So we can't change other people is my point. We can't change other people. We can only change the way we react. But when we change the way we react, we change other people by proxy. Not because we can enforce change on them, but because we cause them to be more present with what they're doing. Yeah. We, we disrupt the pattern. Um, and when I think about that whole idea of James Clear and outcomes and our expectations, that's a large degree of it focusing on how we can do things a little bit differently to disrupt a pattern. Sometimes that's doing nothing at all when we typically would <laughs> react, if, whether it's marital dispute or, or whatever the situation is, right? By choosing to not participate in the dynamic, create space. That reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Professor Iris Gonzalez T. She was on my podcast, Professor at USC and Psychotherapist. And we were talking about why do so many of us have these high and often unrealistic expectations of others? And this is a general blanket statement I want to preface. At the same time, I think generally speaking, a lot of us who uphold these really, really high and often unrealistic expectations of others comes down to lack of control that we feel. Mm. If you have very high self-esteem, if you are confident about your way of navigations of life, I don't think you would have a lot of high expectations of others because you understand that we can't even control how we show up day to day. And on top of that, you want to control how others who are comprised of different genetic makeups, mm -hmm. different upbringing, different way of thinking as we do. That doesn't make any sense, but that's how we lash. That's how we um, cling onto control, right? Is when we feel loss of control in life, because we don't have control of life, we want to overcompensate that by saying, oh, you should do this for me because of X, Y, and Z. You fill in the blank with anything else, but it comes down to how you feel day to day. And this is might be a stretch, but I want to share this uh, thing that I just, my brain is very hyperactive from a lot of coffee I drank this morning. So please bear with my, uh, right there my with brain you. frequency. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a big philosophy fan. And of course, Nietzsche is a prominent philosopher uh, who declared God is dead in light of the rise of nihilism. He said this very famously. He talks about when you're born into this world, you sign a contract with life. On that contract, there is only two clauses. The first clause is you are going to die. Mm -hmm. That's the first certainty that we know amidst this uncertainty of life. The second clause, it says, this life is going to be filled with suffering and pain. Mm -hmm. And of course, joy bliss, happiness, etc. But pain is an inheriting, inheriting characteristics of life. Just think about that. Mm -hmm. When we're born into this world, because we didn't even choose to be born, our parents made that decision for us. Mm -hmm. 
And when we are born by privilege, circumstances, whatever, the only two certainties amidst the uncertainties is that we're going to die and life is going to be filled with suffering. Mm -hmm. It sounds pretty bleak, but I find empowerment in that Mm. because that allows me to adjust my expectations so that I can navigate this container, this mystical containers of life in the most fulfilling and realistic way. Mm. Because idealism does not help anybody. Just like perfectionism, it's an excuse for greenness. And we have to burn those boxes down and we have to update our reality maps. Because a lot of my clients at USC, when they come to me, a lot of their issues are adjustment issues, adjustment disorders where their internal map of viewing the world has not been updated adequately by life because they haven't been stress tested by life or reality tested by life. Mm -hmm. And that happens as you get older and older, right? So a lot of my work with my clients at USC is simply help help them, A, what are your expectations of life and in life? Are they sustainable? Are they healthy? Are they realistic? If not, let's update them. Because it's not about you letting go of your old thoughts necessarily, but it's about can you navigate life in a sustainable and healthy way per your internal worldview? Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting to see so many people, it doesn't matter how smart they are, PhD students, whatever, a lot of us have very unrealistic expectations of what life is. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the suffering is either self-sabotage or self-inflicted in many occasions. Wow, absolutely. You frame that so well. You know, we talk about paradigm shifts and schemas and the lens by which we view the world and you know, changing the internal dialogue or our core belief systems, but you just said it so nice and concisely. (laughs) We have to, (laughs) does our philosophy line up with a practical container of life? And if not, where did those other expectations come from? We talk about reparenting ourselves, right? For oftentimes, you know, children don't have the, the most balanced upbringings. Like you said, we are taught we are modeled a certain way of life but that's not necessarily the way the world quote works or can work in a particular context or region or where you're born there's so many other contributing factors to our human experience that are maybe not even within our control which require a different different application of principles right to live by to gauge our expectations and it sounds to me that is a major factor in helping someone get unstuck which sounds like it's one of your uh, expertise, right? (laughs) Helping people navigate life transitions. I've been working diligently internally to neutralize the language smart. Like, what does that mean, smart? Mm -hmm. Does that mean you have a faster cognitive processing power? Can you look at the abstracts? Can you retain information better? What X, Y, and Z? I think my superpower is my ability to connect the seemingly disconnected points in an abstract way mm-hmm. and for me to articulate those connections and highlight that to the clients or friends or on the podcast. Um, I share that because, yeah, it is this ability to see the less obvious, the nuanced perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I think refining and tweaking our ways around that. But I want to add this because I feel like my response earlier was a little bit too bleak. They're like, oh man, life just happens. We have no control. It is what it is. To that, I want to... I understand. I get it. Like I think about that a lot, but it is empowering for me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But to that, I do want to add one more sign though, where it's cool and it's not lonesome 
because there's eight billions of us who are on this journey together. And of course, all of our circumstances look different from one another. All of us are given with different genetic lotteries, circumstances, and so on. At the same time, not a single person that I know has never endured some sort of a pain and difficult pathway in life. And I find that very reassuring is, yes, it is tough. We didn't get to choose this life per se. Our parents met in a very synchronistic way that gave birth to us and all that. But at the same time, it is cool because you're not walking this path alone. You can look to your left and right, and there's going to somewhere, someone there alongside with you, metaphorically. So I just wanted to add that to make the response a little bit more optimistic and hopeful in light of the Christmas and holiday yes, season. Of y'all course. Them. All in the same yeah. boat. <laughs> We're all in this together, right? Maybe on different stages, different islands, but you know, we uh, the, we have a shared human condition. We all have the same prime emotions, pretty much the same needs, same basic needs. Going back to Locke, right? John Locke philosophy. Yeah. Right. And uh, one of my favorite uh, applications, going back to philosophy too, is uh, Kaufman. I was a sociology major. Mm. One of my favorite theories is stage theory. Because we don't always feel connected to people is my point. And so the key to unlock that sense of belonging is finding ways to connect with other people. And that's not always easy. And I think that's a lot of our work as counselors, as helpers, right, is to help other people feel more connected, not just to their purpose, to their mission, but to each other, which ultimately, right, that's what altruism is, right? Think about the hierarchy of needs. It's coming to a place where, yes, your basic needs are met. Eric Erickson's stage of, you know, psychological needs hierarchy is coming to the place where we can now exist outside of our own needs by serving other people, right? By giving back. And it's not necessarily linear, right? There's different ebbs and flows to its stages. And just like grief, the stages of grief, right? Our, our needs change. It's not fixed. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the uh, a lot of my clients don't understand that life is non-linear. They have this linear expectations. <laughs> if I do this, this happens. Mm-hmm. If I do that, that happens. Until it doesn't. Uh, which is like my pivoting journeys that I realized, oh, life and God, I call it God. Some people call it the source universe, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. But per my faith, I call it God often has a greater or different timeline as I do. That's why I went through all these career pivots, near death deployments in the past like six, seven years. Mm -hmm. But to you, Patrick, like how do you help your clients or people you interact with understand and truly internalize this timeless truth? that life is not linear. I think first by seeking understanding of what their lived experience is and kind of their narrative and then helping them zoom out a little bit to to look for other ways to view their situation or to see their life from other people's perspectives, be that their caregivers, their siblings, their other people that have shared their experiences and help them see themselves objectively a little bit. Because that's a very challenging thing for any of us to do, is to see our own existence from an outside perspective. And because I'm very visual, and this is why I love podcasting, right? This is absolutely why I love podcasting, listening to podcasts, I mean, before I started one, (laughs) just like (laughs) you, um, is because, you know, some clients will ask me, how do I cope? And I'll say, I always, I'm very mindful about what goes in here. 
right? What feeds my mind. It's not, I'm not just uh, absorbing, scrolling, <laughs> you know, I, or even listening to music, which is great. I'm trying to keep my mind intrigued, inspired, you know, with practical wisdom or podcasts or listening to other people's stories. And I think as a, as counselors, we get that on a regular basis because we're constantly listening to people's life stories. But most people don't have that. Most people live a very egocentric life. You know, they are kind of feel like an island. A lot of times, I'm sure it's a very subjective experience. And so they don't get an opportunity oftentimes to see the world from other people's perspectives. And if we're only looking at the world through our own experience and focusing on our own problems, it's kind of hard to train our brain to think about the flexibility, right? The malleability of life. That it's not if this, then that. That there's a plethora of options all the time. And change can happen anytime we want. Most In most cases, not maybe absolute changes. Like you're not going to become a doctor overnight, yeah. right? <laughs> but if you want to be a better student, you know, you can learn those skills. You can affect change. And I think really helping clients, consumers, help seekers find points of intervention when they see that they can affect change in the here and now to improve the moment, going back to like DBT principles, even if you're dysregulated, even if you're emotionally stuck, there's always ways to improve the moment. All of that to me comes from perspective, ways to get outside of our own fixed beliefs even and try and see things from other possibilities because that's how I get unstuck. That's how I break the linear. I try and find a vision for the possibilities rather than focusing on my absolute expectations. And that's a hard thing. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Because I, I feel like a lot of us don't really think about the six inches between our ears, which is our headspace and brain. And of course, this is not my original thoughts. Other great thinkers have said this many, many times, but they often talk about we need to care about our mind or mental nutrition. What we intake nutritionally through the mind, through knowledge, information, stories, whatever, versus just having all this junk through TikTok and other mm -hmm. technological front ends that's happening that's not always conducive to our, for our growth. At the same time, not everything has to be growth. Of course, I do understand that there is a need and place for everything. So that's something I wanted to share. And also, speaking of the moment, because I feel like when people talk about life is linear, mm -hmm. that's not conducive because life is, if life were linear, that means it's, it's bi-directional. What I mean by that is if life is truly linear, which is not, if in this moment you feel sad and depressed, if life were linear, that means you're going to stay sad and depressed for a long time. But that's not the case. According to Google University, a moment is, I think, 30 to 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And what that means is we have the power to rewrite our emotions and rewrite the chapters of our life moment by moment. Mm -hmm. I come from an eclectic background, but I'm very big on mindfulness. I've been a daily a meditator for the past three, four years. And I work with a mindfulness, self-compassion group therapy with my clients as well at USC. And that's what we talk a lot about is just because you're feeling some type of way, good or bad in that moment, 
that's not a predictor for how you're going to feel for the next moment or for the next 20 moments, for the next hours. Mm -hmm. We always have the capacity and the power to rewrite our realities moment by moment. Only if you recognize, acknowledge the capacity and the power that we all have. And I think that to me is what mental health Mm -hmm. is that you don't have to accept your reality as is. At the same time, there is always something we can do about it. And that's the empowerment is we have the capacity of action and decision-making if we choose to. Not that it's always easy, but I think a lot of gateways open up once you make a decision and you embark Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Then I think we'll be often surprised by what life has in place for us on the other side. Absolutely. You know, remember that no feeling is final. No feeling is final. And we used to talk about that a lot in the... Before the pandemic, when I was running cognitive behavioral therapy groups and stuff, is uh, a big part of the module on depression is that pleasure predicting is very skewed, right? You can't even trust our own feelings a lot of the time or how much we will actually benefit from something, a planned activity, a healthy activity. So then we have to trust, again, trust the process that we, that's that whole idea of behavioral activation, right? Right. (laughs) That's why it's an intervention, right? Is that sometimes if we can get, remove the the time that we allow to talk ourselves out of something that's good for us and just do what we know is good for us, then we have that biofeedback, right? And that elicits more positive emotions and then so forth, right? And that gets the positive snowball going again. But great point, you know, again, that it's easy to feel like life is linear and that it'll always be this way, but we know it's not. We know that no feeling is final, no circumstances the same. And going back to what you were, even that prior question you were asking me, how do I help clients identify, you know, get to a place where they understand that life isn't linear, is their goals, right? Because I feel like that's at the crux of a lot of anxiety for clients, especially from, you know, households where they are expected to check the boxes and do things in a particular order, dot, 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 you know, go to college, get married, have a career, you know, and if there's a lot of pressure especially familial pressure, because this is just what we do in this family, then if they don't check a box or if they're struggling and they don't feel like they can be transparent about that, then suddenly they are a failure or there's shame and there's guilt or even on the opposite side of the spectrum, right? For, for someone who maybe didn't grow up with that structure, then there's the comparative thinking. They're looking to the people who are, who are chained to that structure and they're envious, whereas the people who are chained to the structure are maybe looking to, to those who maybe don't have those high expectations and are envious of that. And I think we get so caught up in what we think we, quote, should be. We should all over ourselves. And it creates a lot of anxiety. If we can learn that things don't have to happen in a particular order in order to have a quality life, a life that we're happy with, I think that's very free. And I see this a lot with especially when I'm working with 20 somethings, you know, with a lot of anxiety about this stuff, or I'm never going to meet the love of my life. I'm never going to have that career I want. And I have to remind them that, do you realize that the divorce rate is 50%? Now that is a good thing, (laughs) but people are starting over all the time. People are recreating themselves all the time. If the pandemic, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that. With the great resignation, right? Of people walking away from their jobs and re, recalibrating, rethinking about what it is they want, you know. Um, and this is not new, right? If we look at history, you know, the Great Depression. You know, if you ever read that book by uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, 
great book. It's not actually about making money. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the foundation of all other self-help books on the planet. Um, Think and Grow Rich is about mindset. It's about understanding the difference between tribulations and opportunities. And they're not mutually exclusive. It's understanding that in spite of any circumstance, what's going on in society, what's going on in the world, we always have options to recreate ourselves. And really the key is inspiration and curiosity. If we can get curious about life and stop assuming what we think we, we know about how life works and give ourselves permission to dream, like when we were kids with our imagination and possibilities, I don't know where we lose that. But somewhere along the line, it becomes uh, an atrophied muscle, right, of our mental health is giving ourselves permission to dream and imagine. That's why Disney is so popular, right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's their, that's their currency, right? And it, I think we all connect with that from our childhood. Like, oh, yeah, this feels good to think about possibilities, right? And for me, that's one of the primary goals of counseling is to help people get back to that place where they see and feel the possibility of life, that it's not just about checking the boxes. I think the major takeaway from our conversation today, of course, there's more coming, but we need to burn down this vocab of should. Mm-hmm. I call it sh- don't shit yourself, like don't should yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like according to who? Oh, I should have a mortgage pay for a house, a loving, healthy, committed marriage, and amazing in my career by age 30. Says who? Mm-hmm. You or someone else? Because I hate that word. And I think we need to burn that down yeah. because should is often imposed externally by someone else. They internalize as truth by someone else's limited opinions. So first of all, let's burn that word down and eradicate it from our vocabulary. The second thing is I love mental health because let's say a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to work on mental health today. Cool. If that's how you feel, that's fine. But the cool thing is there's multiple entry points. What I mean by that is one of my mission statements on my podcast of Discover More is to show this equation that mental health equals a health, period. What that means is if you don't feel like seeing a therapist today, if you don't feel like thinking about thinking, if you don't feel like journaling about how your week went, that's fine because we all have our cups of needs and our capacity day to day. You can work on your physical health, go on a run, partake in a rigorous exercise for 30 minutes to an hour because research shows that 30 to an hour of rigorous workout or running releases the equivalent serotonin amount as SSRIs or antidepressants. That's a very powerful statistics. And guess what? Naturally, by working on your physical health, your mental health improves. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say conversely, you're too tired. You're dealing with physical illness and you cannot work on your physical health. Cool. Work on your mental health. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Using psychology as entry point, you improve your physiology. And that's why mental health is the underlying foundations of how all of us navigate day to day. Because I dare anyone provide a counterexample of when you don't feel good physically, let me know how your mental health is. Hmm. I doubt that you're feeling peaches and rainbows and sunshine <laughs> when you're dealing with the flu, especially yeah. this year. The flu this year is strong, right? Mm-hmm. Or conversely, when you don't feel good mentally and emotionally, dealing with the uh, constant tidal waves of life, family drama, mourning, grief, whatever, you tell me you feel good physically, I highly doubt it, right? 
So I just want to share that because that's why I love mental health, because it's not just end all be all with one fixed entry point. There is multiple ways to work on your mental health, Um, just like there's multiple ways to work on your physical. It's not just about going to the doctors once a week or once a year. Absolutely. It's a holistic approach. I mean, I know that's a no one of those hot <laughs> catchphrases, but that's essentially what it means. It means that there's many entry points. There's many points of intervention, right? That I, I don't know is talked about enough that people don't have to wait to see a therapist or a psychiatrist or to work, quote, work on their mental health. You know, there's lots of other ways that they can start building in habits that give them an advantage right? Protective factors, whether that like diet exercise, and we could talk at length just about diet and tryptophan and the importance of getting enough adequate protein and healthy fats in your diet in order to even secrete serotonin or that most people who struggle with clinical organic uh, anxiety and depression run low in serotonin in their limbic system. And so they need to work a little extra harder to make sure they're getting enough through that blood brain barrier. And that's through diet and exercise. Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, are not bottled serotonin. <laughs> they are they can't. They cannot bottle serotonin. All they can do is give you medications that help you recycle your serotonin, like pouring coffee through the same grounds. It's not not great. Um, it's a little extra oomph, but it's not uh that alone is not ideal, right? You have to replenish the body through diet um so that the other stuff can work so your body can do its job. And that's also through sleep, which produces the human growth yeah. hormone, which you need to convert tryptophan to serotonin. So it's a whole thing, right? It's all working together. Self-care, diet, exercise, the counseling, which is more just the introspective work of how we frame, how we think about things, right? Because that leads to stress and cortisol. And when we stress ourselves out, right, by thinking about the problem in a vacuum, it creates more stress, which affects everything else. And so causes inflammation. So it is, it's all interrelated. You bring up a really good point where you talked about these pharmaceutical interventions and medicine are not bottled serotonin or happiness or whatever. Mm -hmm. It'd actually be a extremely concerning issue if they were. What I mean by that is I think a lot of us often negate and forget the real growth comes from the journey. And of course it's such a trope, right? At the same time, like skill sets compound, competency compounds. And how do you get competent at something? You do that task or the skill sets through refinement, iterations, and practice. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, a, a lot of people ask me, Benoit, would you, if you were to have an access to time travel, would you go back and change anything? I said, no. I will never turn back the major depression that I experienced during my deployment in 2017. I will never turn back the six years I spent in policymaking before my major career pivot at age 28. I will never change back all these situations I've encountered and worked through. Because of these challenges, I know how to navigate that. It's like the saying of, unless you get stuck, how do you know how to get unstuck? Uh You can't. So if there were actual bottled serotonins and happiness and well-being and whatever you want to language, you want to describe them as, that's a huge problem because they might neutralize the brain chemical imbalance that some of us have, but you're not going to learn from that process and you're not going to expand your toolbox, which is what mental health is about, which is Absolutely. what life is about. Like you need to be self-sufficient, not in terms of this hyper-individualistic independence that 
capitalistic America loves and glorifies. What I mean by that is you need to learn how to self-regulate, self-sufficient, and self-survive because a lot of times when we do fall into these dark pits of mental health moments, it does feel like utter ever-consuming darkness. And of course, as you talked about earlier, none of us are alone. At the same time, we may perceive us as being alone. During those dark moments, you need to be able to be self-sufficient, get yourself out by seeking help, but also leaning onto your mental health toolbox. So, and that only comes with actual iterations of processing. Mm-hmm. That actually comes with the actual journal, um, journaling forth in your healing journey. But yeah, I wanted to highlight that because um, I think a lot of people want these short-term fixes because uh, some of my expertise in psychedelic medicine, uh, as my as I'm a beneficiary of that, but also I want to be an aspirational psychedelic assisted psychotherapist. And I've had my pulse on most psychedelic research out there in the past five years due to my own sexual trauma journey I've moved through myself. And yeah, a lot of people have very, once again, unrealistic expectations of what mental health and healing entails. And I wish it was a short-term fix. Mm-hmm. I wish. But then we'll be out of the jobs, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> they're not going to be empowering themselves. But at the same time, like the lottery and Powerball are always going to be around because we're always going to have subsets of populations who want that short cut to success, fame, wealth, healing, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying those are necessarily bad, but what I am saying is I think a lot of those folks are going to miss out tremendously from the actual growth that's predicated on actually venturing to the unknown and venturing the path forward. Yeah, it is a journey, definitely. And we learn, like you said, ways to thrive along the way. And that's the kind of the definition of a crisis, right? When somebody's coping skills that they would normally use to weather a crisis aren't working anymore, then they go into crisis, then they panic. Oh, the deep breathing's not working. Oh, I talked to my friend, but that didn't help. Or that my, that's no longer available. I don't have my confidant anymore. You know, when we lose our coping skills or they become ineffective anymore, it throws, throws us off balance. And so to your point, very helpful to have a toolbox of different options, right, for the job, different tools for the job, because problems will present themselves in many different ways and our needs change and what works changes. And so it's important to kind of collect your own personal toolbox of what you know through self experimentation, understanding, right? Trial and error to know next time this happens, I know what to do. (laughs) And if something else happens, you know, I trust that I will be capable and adequate to figure it out. It's like Marie Forleo, you know, that book, everything is figure outable. I love that term, you know, um, to give her credit that the sense of capability or sense of capacity to take on challenges as they come instead of evading running away or feeling inadequate is everything because in order to be courageous fear has to be present yep fear has to be present in order to be courageous right by its own definition and so would not have anybody walk away from this uh podcast thinking that oh i have to have it all together in order to to weather a crisis or to thrive, right? Or to get unstuck. No, quite to the contrary. You do have to be courageous, meaning you have to be willing to try new things. You have to be willing to ask for help. You have to be willing to experiment without getting attached to outcomes, 
right? Without getting down on yourself, without shaming yourself when something doesn't work, but simply taking it as data. Okay, well, I'm depressed. My therapist said to go to that uh, volleyball game with my friend. I knew it wouldn't help. It didn't help. I'm never doing that again. No. <laughs> okay, so take note. Okay, it didn't work this time. What's some other things I can try? Don't stop there. You know, be willing to try on different things. Experiment. When my clients uh, exhibit like all or nothing, like always this, never that, I ask them sometimes, oh, I didn't know you had superpower of predicting the future. <laughs> can you can you share that with me? Because I would love really to. really helpful. <laughs> yeah, I would love to peep into the future too. Yeah. Of course, jokes aside, none of us mind read. None of us know the future. So why subjugate ourselves to these all or nothing? Like, oh, I will never amount to this. I will always do that. Well, maybe, maybe not. None of us knows. So, um, and yeah, I love what you said in terms of this paradigm shift going from pathology driven to the skills based uh, mm -hmm. paradigm. What I mean by that is, I think a lot of us like to pathologize others, and pathology is defined by studying of the root of problem in a layman's terms. Uh, because I do feel like a lot of mental health and public health crisis issues are skill based. What that means is many of us don't have adequate or sufficient skill sets, whether that's emotional regulation skills that we talked about, whether that's distress tolerance skills, which comes down to suicide risk, mental health, mm -hmm. depressions, pretty much all mental health containers. So I, I love that uh, paradigm shift where I do think it's not really about us being inadequate, but our toolbox being inadequate. And that's also like the growth mindset by Carol Dweck, right? When you talked about capacity builds up, it's like this idea that I'm not there yet. That does not mean I will never get there because our capacity may not be at a level where it's going to be self-sufficient or help us navigate whatever stressors we're dealing with in the moment. At the same time, we can always grow our capacity. And I use that word always very intentionally. Mm -hmm. so that's something that just came up but i agree i do feel like a lot of our mental health challenges are skill-based not really necessarily about people because it's like the idea of client is not the problem the problem is the problem and right. that's like the narrative therapy right absolutely i love that we don't lack the capacity we often just lack the tools yeah we don't know what we don't know yeah we don't know what we don't know yeah which is why asking questions is everything. Remember the, uh, was it Tony Robbins? I'm trying to remember who said it, that the quality of our life is largely dependent upon the type of questions we ask. And I would go further and say the kind of questions we ask ourselves and others, how we frame things. That's all the CBT, right? It's going from statements to questions, retraining our mind to be more inquisitive than absolute. I think it, it is Tony Robbins. And he also, maybe it's him or someone else. They also talked about, Better questions lead to better answers, and better answers lead to improved quality of life. Yes. And, right. and even I do questions. agree. Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> and right. I think the humility is a prerequisite to curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because for you to ask me any questions, of course, this is an interview and I'm a guest. But that aside, for you, Patrick, to ask me any questions, you must internalize the fact that, oh, I have something to learn from Benoit. And vice versa, when I asked you about the linear life question, I first had these internal humility that I have something to learn from Patrick. 
That's why I asked you a question. Absolutely. So, yeah, I do feel like humility is needed to be curious. And often a lot of those people that I know about in my life, professionally or interpersonally, the ones that lack curiosity, I think at least from the outside, lack that humility. Um, that's why they don't really engage in these conversations. And of course, we do live in the, the death of nuances where everything's about 100 bits or less. Everything's about 20 second reels. 60 seconds too long now. It's got to be 30 or less. So there's a lot of contributing factors to what we're talking about. But I really subscribe to the healing property of curiosity. When you are curious, you'll be surprised by the magic that awaits on the other side. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, it goes right in hand in hand with being courageous, right? Um, when I first started doing this podcast, I, you know, was anxious jumping into interviews. But for those listening, this is not scripted. There's no preloaded questions. There's no, you know, there's no rigidity to it. We jump in and we're having a real conversation based on curiosity. And so the more comfortable we get with that exchange, the more we get back. You know, and that's one thing I, I really try and drive home whenever I'm whenever I'm sitting with somebody in counseling or otherwise. It's just the importance of being curious. Right. Yeah. And getting comfortable with just engaging. So important. The longer I do therapy, the more I learn that um humans are great fiction writers. Mm. What I mean by that is let's say you had this text with someone else, and of course, how we interpret that text is always a reflections of how we feel in that very moment. Mm -hmm. There is a big skip by Kian Peel about text messages. It's like two minutes long. I urge people to check it out. It's, it's a really funny skit, but it is so true because I fall into the unhelpful thinking style of personalizations a lot, especially via text, because you can't really read sarcasm or tonality or emotion mm -hmm. via text, but rather it's how you feel in that moment. But yeah, a lot of times when we miss or lack certain context dealing with different humans because dealing with different humans is not easy because you're dealing with different sets of triggers, circumstances, emotionality, and so on. It's always the fastest and the most optimal. If we actually just ask a questions of, Oh, Patrick, you said something that sort of is sitting unwell with me. What did you mean by that? Is this what you meant? Mm -hmm. Instead, most of us will make a certain assumptions of, wow, Patrick is attacking me, he's gaslighting me, he just said this offensive thing. And we fill in that gap of context with fictions based on what our brains are feeling in that moment. And the longer the plot writing goes, fictitiously, the more off and farther you away from the truth. And of course, metacognitively, some of us can check ourselves in that moment and sort of reel back the assumptions because assumption makes an ass of you and me. I feel like we haven't... Uh, heard that saying in a long time yeah. but yeah i do realize a lot of us are great fiction writers and we love filling the blank without appropriate context Absolutely. instead the one question the mm -hmm. clarifying question is all it takes and you're like oh cool right. that was just my trigger and how i was feeling but i think about that often yeah me too i remember the thomas theorem if something is believed to be real it's real and often real in its consequences. Going back to what you're saying, our assumptions get the best of us. To be clear is to be kind, right? To, to seek clarification always if there's anything missing, but especially in text. Like you're saying, intonation and stuff. I try and teach my kids, you know, or what I try and do, you know, practice what I preach. And with the tools we have today, send an audio text. If there's any question whatsoever 
I was talking about this a client the other day who had a difficult thing they wanted to talk to their their family about. And I was like, well, they were going to text it. But I was like, why not send an audio message on top of a text? Because then they have the intonation. They understand your emotion, right, through your voice. And they're not going to just assume you're right in their case. So important. I can't remember. Was it Carl Rogers? Or who was it who said we, we don't see people as they are. We see them as we are. We project on other people our insecurities, basically, or psychology and reflected appraisals. I mean, like you said, this stuff's been around forever, right? The hum- humans don't change. So that's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> the good news is humans have never changed in history, really. So we're working with a, uh, a set data set, you know, a fixed set <laughs> of human emotions and behavior. So it become, we can predict to some extent how to, how to work around these things. I think a Bon Jovi song lyric says, the more things change, the more things stay the same, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I say this in part of my own cynicism from my political or my policy background experience, but it actually makes sense why the world is burning down every single day because the world is burning down politically, socioeconomically, and so on, is you have 8 billion floating stardust in this world with 8 billion different trigger points. So of course, the world is riddled with conflict every single day. Um, And that sort of gives me comfort of, oh, it's not that humans are innately malicious or whatever, but a lot of people don't have the toolkits. A lot of people don't have the educations or knowledge or self-awareness. That's why a lot of people are just getting triggered by each other. That's why I subscribe to this statement where healing has ripple effect. When you're healed by yourself, it's not just you who are deriving the benefit of healing. When you are healed, everyone around you are healed because you show up better, more lovingly, through more empathy, through more understanding with others. And imagine if, I don't know, this is average number, if a billion, one-eighth of our human populations are healed, imagine the ripple effect and what that really means for societal level which goes all the way back to how we started this interview. But that's why I'm really, really dedicated and passionate about this work because there's so much work to be done. Uh, I saw this article from a month ago, I believe, where they did a survey. It's a pretty credible source. I forgot the source. But uh, about 49 to 50% of Americans still believe seeking therapy as weakness. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we do have millennials, which you and I are part of, and the Gen Z. I do think that we're creating this societal change incrementally. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do think there's a lot more work to be left, a lot more stigma for us to tackle and address. At the same time, I'm very hopeful because when I'm healed, everyone around me also derive the benefits from that. And that's why I, I really want to encourage all of us to seek help. And it doesn't have to be therapy. Read a book, read a book about self-help, read a book about thinking about thinking, philosophy, study of human behaviors, whatever avenues that you see fit. But yeah, I do think that healing comes with ripple effect. Likewise, destruction and lack of healing also is destructive through a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about which option we choose. So why wouldn't we choose the former? It's work. Yeah. <laughs> and that's very well said. And that's why, you know, I know that's probably why you started your podcast. That's why I started my podcast because, and it's been access to care 
the landscape has changed with the pandemic with telehealth, which is great. I think access to care has always been challenging and probably always will be challenging because of supply and demand issue. But modalities like this, the podcast, at the very least, I think gives people an opportunity to absorb, like you said, one more option to absorb information to help think about their thinking, to challenge their thinking a little bit, to open their mind up to concepts that maybe they they'll help them get unstuck. And which is very refreshing for me when I see other therapists like you doing this, because I was asking myself, am I crazy to be doing this? Is this really going to help anybody? <laughs> you know, is yeah. this, you know, because it is, it is an effort, um, but it's also a mission, right? To raise mental health awareness. And by that, I mean, personal development, whatever we want to call it, wellness, personal development, self-care, you know, it's all the same. Help people live their best lives by their own definition but really to equip. And so it's really a breath of fresh air for me to, to, to meet someone like you, you know, Benoit, who's, who's in this as well and, and fighting the good fight. So. To that, I just want to say this where I think all worthy things in life requires effort. And for you to embark on anything that's worthy of your time and effort and energy, it's going to be difficult to the ethos of seeking this comfort, tie that into mental health or otherwise where we have to understand and accept this fact that if you're on a certain path, mental health or otherwise, but especially within the containers of healing, it is going to be uncomfortable. There will be walls and walls of discomfort for you to move through. Not, but, uh, not heading the wall per se, but you have to move through those obstacles. And that's actually a good sign. Mm -hmm. If it's always easy and effortless, you're probably on the wrong path uh, in terms of what you're doing, in terms of making being avoidance, running away from the problems and so on. So if it's worthy of your time and effort, it is going to have some innate discomfort associated with that. And I view that as a great thing because we're all about meaning making machines, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very cognitive, so I love making meanings out of life. Yes. But sometimes there is no why. Like, why does that happen? It's, it's in, especially in terms of grief counseling and grief. But it's a very nuanced topic. But at large, generally speaking, worthy journeys are going to have discomfort. And that's a good thing. Yes. Thank you for saying that. That's a really, really important thing. And sometimes we drive by pretty fast and say, oh, this, you know, coping should be easy. No, no, no. Going back to what you said, you know, we are born in this world and life is hard. But we get a choice in how we do hard. Either way, it's hard. It's hard to suffer, but it's also hard to thrive. So the army adage, embrace the suck. Oh, there. I like that. That works. Yeah. <laughs> to the best of your ability, embrace a suck to the best of your ability. And a lot of us are more capable of what we think we are. Mm -hmm. And that requires thinking, intentionality, being mindful, and the courage that you talked about. Because yeah, I think Will Smith said this. I, I love quotes, as you can tell. But if you can't do it, if you can't do it fearless, do it scared. Yeah. Like you said, right? Courage is not the absence of fear, but with fear comes with courage. It's like right. um, what Morgan Freeman said, when you ask and pray about forgiveness, God doesn't give you forgiveness. God gives you opportunity to forgive. When you ask for love, God doesn't give you love. God gives you opportunities to be loving. Mm -hmm. And I sort of see that and tie into what you just said. Absolutely. 
so much, so much we can chew on. <laughs> <laughs> I could keep going for hours. This is good stuff. Well, this was great. This was great. Well, I wish you a great rest of your day. It looks like the sun's speaking out in LA. So, you know, maybe go for a walk. And uh, yeah, this was great. I will uh, reach out to you as soon as it's all up and posted. Thank you so much and uh, happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Likewise.